Hi, and welcome to the Black Dog Cast. I'm your host, Alex Palmer. You may be wondering what this Black Dog thing is all about, so let me take a few minutes to explain. It all started a few years back in London. Out riding bikes with some mates, we got talking, realised most of us were dealing with some sort of mental health challenge. Being out on the bike was a great place to talk it out and get things off our chest, and for some of us, this was the first step to really working through our issues and getting help. So we created Black Dog with a really simple aim, to use cycling to get more men talking about this. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend and fellow cyclist, Dr. John Marne. John is a psychiatrist here in Southern Oregon, and we talk about what a psychiatrist does, when you might need to visit one, and what the difference is from other behavioral therapists. We also talk bikes and why riding with your mates is so important, why comparing yourself to others on Strava, Zwift, or obsessing over your FTP might actually be detrimental to your mental health, and why a return to the good old British club run might be just what we need right now. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Good, good. Why don't you get started? Just give us the sort of quick overview, like what do you do and sort of what was your story to become a psychiatrist? I think I'll probably just give you some of the nuts and bolts and then yeah, weave in some personal stuff. So I'm a physician. I specialize in mental health and addiction. So I'm a psychiatrist and I also did a fellowship in addiction psychiatry. So that's basically you go to undergrad, um, you know, for four years and then you do medical school for four years and then four years of adult psychiatry residency and then one year of addiction psychiatry fellowship. And I'm currently a psychiatrist. I practice for a county mental health program. I'm the medical director here in Jackson County. So that's okay. kind of nuts and bolts. How did I get there? <laughs> well, that's a... <laughs> Give, give us give us give us the quick version. <laughs> That's a huge. I mean, I, I don't come from a family of medical people or physicians. And when I say you do four years of undergrad, that's for I guess if you have it figured out. I I went to undergrad twice because I had I didn't do any science classes the first time. I didn't really know I was going to do this, but after college, you know, I kind of got to a point in my mid twenties where. I wasn't super satisfied with what I was doing. And I, I went back to college, thought I wanted to be a physician and it turned out I was right. And so did a second degree in general science and then kind of moved on that direction. I didn't, even though I'd done an undergrad originally in psychology, I didn't know I wanted to be a psychiatrist. I thought it was going to be a, a family doc or emergency room. But, you know, you kind of, you go through all the different specialties in your third and fourth year and kind of at the same time we, we haven't talked about this before but my sister was diagnosed with a terminal illness while I was in medical school we you know I didn't know it was terminal at the time but it didn't have a good prognosis so kind of watching her get sick really while I was in medical school you know gives you an opportunity to kind of examine what is important in life and what do you want out of life? And when people are at the end of their lives, you know, their, their priorities are often different. And I think I took that opportunity to, I think, learn, learn from my sister, <laughs> you know, yeah. why wait till the end of my life to get my priorities straight. And so, you know, that was all very 
formative, it turns out. And uh, what I wanted was a career where I try and help people that often are pushed aside, maybe aren't, you know, or face a lot of stigma, even just in the, in the search to get care. And at the same time, you know, a career that can allow me to still live my own life, you know, and, and spend time with my family and, and still invest in myself. So for me, that was psychiatry and I don't regret it. Yeah. And I remember when we talked before this, you were explaining kind of, you know, you, you work in a public sort of health uh, sector, right? You don't mm-hmm. work in private practice. That was sort of something specific that sort of drew you towards that to help people that needed it, that need it the most, right? Hard to argue with that. Yeah. You know, community psychiatry is, is what we call it when, you know, the county program. So a, a lot of, you know, traditionally that's where people without insurance can get treatment. And still, we still have some people without insurance, but these days with you know, the Medicaid expansion in Oregon, so many people have treatment. Um, but almost all of my, all the people I see have either Medicaid or Meta, uh, Medicare. So public insurance of one type or another, or they don't have insurance at all. And, you know, so it's nice to be able to provide services to people who really need it, you know, while at the same time, not thinking of every interaction you know, as like a monetized interaction, you know, like in private practice, yeah. I would, I would worry that, that the things start to shift that direction. And I'm glad not to have that pressure in my life and to just be able to treat people. Yeah. I, the whole subject of sort of access to the, this, to this sort of thing. And when, you know, money gets involved in it is, um, I think, yeah, we can probably come back to that because it's obviously I have a, quite a different viewpoint of it coming from the UK, but even there, and, and this was something that, you know, I talked about in the first episode of this with, you know, my very good friend back home who was anonymous on that one. And, you know, even in the UK, it, a lot of the time in order to get really good care, you, it's still, it's still a sort of, you know, pay for play thing. And it definitely discriminates mm. against people that don't have the funds to go out and get, you know, private therapy where they need it. And, and I won't pretend that, you know, it's, it's always the best care, you know, often options are really limited with the public health yeah. insurance options, especially Medicare, frankly. All right. I think it's so much more acute here as well. You know, I think in, in yeah. the UK, yeah, there's clearly there's a difference between national health service, mental health provisions and private medical care. And you can get much better you can get much better access and much faster access going private, but the free care is is still really good compared to over here where it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's a totally different situation, isn't it? I won't take that personally. That's no, okay. well, look, I, th- I think it comes, <laughs> it comes down to the number of people that make the, make a choice like you have made. Right. And I guess there's probably a lot of people in yeah. your, in your field that it's really hard to turn down the what they can make in private practice right is, is is that how a lot of people kind of see it i don't yeah you know and honestly i don't know you know for a psychiatrist i don't know that if you figure in you know all the benefits of working for the government which i do i work for county government i don't i don't know that i make a whole lot less than a psychiatrist in private practice yeah uh, but the the level of illness is certainly different and i think that's what moves a lot of people to private practice is um, people in general are, are of less acuity 
mm-hmm. you know, and and have more resources around them, which I, I think, you know, it's just a choice. Yeah. Let's sort of, first of all, start with some basics of, you know, if somebody doesn't know what a psychiatrist does, can you just explain sort of what are the nuts and bolts of being a psychiatrist and also how that differs from, you know, I guess what we would call a therapist, which is a psycho- uh, like a behavioral psychologist, right? Oh, yeah. No, this is like the dinner party question. I get, I get this there, quite a bit. So are, are you the one? <laughs> can, can you prescribe drugs or is that the other one? Um, yeah. Psych- so psychiatrists are trained, go to medical school and we do part of a medical internship and so we're the ones who can prescribe drugs. I don't like to say that's all we do because it's not. You know, we're also trained in evidence-based psychotherapies, usually in training, kind of depending how much you seek that out. Certainly some is mandatory and as much as you want, you know, um, depending on your your interest, really. So what psychiatrists do in, in team-based settings, I work in a team-based setting with other mental health specialists, you know, including nurses, nurse practitioners, therapists, licensed clinical social workers, housing specialists, and supported employment specialists, case managers, skills trainers, and so a whole big team. And psychiatrists work to help shape the the big picture, as well as are the ones that are somewhat specialized in some of the more uh, differential diagnoses. So really figuring out what what exactly is going on, and then of course you know, using when appropriate. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I'd preface this question with it, it, it's probably different in your environment compared to in private practice, but what's the typical pathway that somebody goes through, you know, when they're when they're accessing services like this? Or is there not a typical pathway? You know, does somebody come in and, you know, do they always get referred from their GP or their primary care physician or do they get referred from a, a psychologist or do they see you first like how how does that work yeah so and it's a little different because i work with some specialized programs like a assertive community treatment or an act team i don't know if you've ever heard of that and that's for people usually who who have been involved in you know mental health care somewhere else and their level was more acute and had higher needs often they've been in the hospital recently several times usually in the last year Maybe they've been involved with the justice system. Usually there's a coexisting substance use disorder. So it's kind of more of a complex picture. And those referrals come from community providers or insurance companies or our state hospital. I get a lot of referrals from, you know, when people are hospitalized up in the state capital, mm-hmm. state hospital, they try and discharge to act teams for just general open access. We have a lot less open access now with, we've had a couple of nonprofit programs open up recently that do the bulk of the Medicaid work in this area. But, you know, we have a crisis department and so we do get referrals if someone, you know, is needing services and establishes usually first with, almost always with a therapist here first. But we also do get referrals directly from general practitioners, primary care providers. Yeah. Yes. And who, I guess, out of all of those intermediaries, sort of primary care, psychologist, you, is one of those parties like responsible for sort of diagnosing this or do they they all 
play their part? I mean, what what's the typical pathway to actually get to a diagnosis? Yeah. A diagnosis or <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. Um, usually, I mean, to enter, so I work at a community mental health program. That's the technical name. And to start delivering services and bill to, you know, a, a public insurance entity, there has to be a diagnosis. And, you know, sometimes those diagnoses are right and sometimes they're not right. And that's, that's part of my job is to help figure out, you know, is this the right diagnosis or could this be something else? And I don't always get it right the first time. Your first episode, you talked quite a bit about bipolar disorder, um, mm-hmm. you know, and for those didn't get a chance to hear that one, you know, bipolar disorder is what we call an affective disorder, or a mood disorder that's characterized by depressive episodes and at least one manic episode. But, you know, in, as someone starts to have symptoms of bipolar disorder, they don't always have the manic episode first, you yeah. know? And so you can very much encounter someone who's having just depressive episodes. And, you know, at that point, it's really, it's nearly impossible to say, oh, this is bipolar disorder based on your history until they have a manic episode. And so in diagnosis, it's a process of evolution. You know, it's, it's very much science. You know, if you think about if you had to do science projects in high school, you, you might remember the science, scientific method, you know, where you, you gather information, you make a guess about what you think is going to happen, and then you do something and you observe some more, and then you come to a conclusion. And sometimes that leads you to more data, you know, more observation. But you know, we do the, you got to do the best. There's no blood tests for psychiatric illnesses. You know, they're all based on symptom profiles and baseline likelihoods of something being what it is. So, and and then is, uh, is there, I I can't remember what it's called, but there's, there's this sort of like list of criteria that doctors mm -hmm. use to put people in, to give people a formal diagnosis, which I'm guessing over here is people need to be check one of those boxes to get insurance coverage or something like that, right? Classification thing called. It's, well, we're on the DSM-5 now. That's it, DSM. Um, it's the DSM, right. yeah. That's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. We're on the fifth edition at this point. And, you know, that does contain, you know, all the basically check checklists of symptoms. And it's a nice book. It's a big book. And I think it gets people think of it just as checklists, but there's a lot of good information in it too. But that's the one. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess a lot of that is subjective as well, right? So people could be, they could be given one diagnosis, and then as you learn more about them and you work with them, and they could end up with a, with another diagnosis completely. Absolutely. Yeah. I wit, you know, I definitely wish we were at a point where there could be a blood test or an imaging test. You know, as is the case in so much of medicine, um, but they're all what we call clinical diagnoses, so based on uh, examination. And in our case, examination is mostly, you know, interview. Um, yeah. 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 Well, look, I, I, I guess I want to talk about that, you know, the question of how you find a therapist in the first place. But again, just like going back a stage, I suppose this is more, I'm thinking more here about sort of, uh, you know, maybe people in private practice or people that are not sort of in the, what's the word, maybe at the more acute end of, um, of situations like you deal with in, in sort of community mental health. And there's this, I think there's a really big gray area when people are trying to figure out what's going on as to, you know, where's that line between, you know, 
I'm feeling down, I'm struggling, maybe I've got some shit going on in my life that is causing me a lot of stress, anxiety, I'm not dealing it very well. So then getting into, you know, maybe I've got something which I might call a mental health issue. So then a serious mental illness, it's a huge spectrum. And I think for a lot of people in maybe in in taking that first step and accessing help, figuring out where they are on that and when they need to do something about it is really, really hard, isn't it? Yeah, that first step is a big one. Yeah, huge. Absolutely. How do you approach it? Maybe it comes, look, it comes back to that sort of, that tipping point of, you know, I'm just, I'm having a bad day or a bad week and I'm going through some some shit that I can't deal with to, I've got a mental health issue, I need to get help for. I mean, just, just that alone is a, is a tricky point to negotiate, isn't it? Right. Yes. I, you know, and you mentioned, you know, general practitioners, primary care docs, and I, I think it's a great place to start, you know, frankly, you know, whether it's medication or not at that point, it's, it can be worth just having the conversation and, you know, will, will every conversation go well? I understand. No, you know, but I guess start talking hopefully to anyone you trust. And, and for many people, you know, with health, health related stuff, it is, that is the primary care doc, mm-hmm. not a bad place to start. But the first step is, yeah, it's a huge, and, and hopefully, you know, this podcast, other podcasts start to demystify some of this a little bit and can just make the conversation among friends easier, frankly. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah, that was, I guess if you listen to the first episode, that was kind of part of the whole reason for starting this in the first place is just to get more, I get more people and get more men in particular talking about this sort of thing. Okay. I mean, I I guess a lot of the, the sort of figuring out when you need help, maybe, is it, am I right in thinking it's sort of, part of it is sort of how, how regularly these things are happening and how, how often they're coming back, right? And And if, again, the difference between somebody that's, Maybe they're going through a period of acute stress at work. Maybe they've, they're dealing with, you know, I don't know, something bereavement or, or that sort of thing. There may be more one-off incidents, but when it starts to repeat itself on a regular basis, I'm guessing that's a, a clear flag that, you know, maybe it's time to get some help, right? Yeah. And I, I wouldn't, I guess what I want people to understand is you don't have to, I don't want people out there to think they have to be an expert and know when that line is. Yeah. You know, there's no, like when you, when you go to the amusement park and there's that thing that's like, you have to be this tall to ride this ride. Like there's no, we don't have anything like that. You know, I, I I would say, you know, as soon as someone wonders, I wonder if I should talk to someone about this. The answer probably is, yeah, you know, talk, talk to somebody. Does it mean you need need to be on medication? No. Does it mean you need to engage in some type of program of therapy? Not necessarily, but I, I would say, if anyone out there ever feels like they wonder if they should talk to, you know, a healthcare provider about it, I would say the answer is yeah, definitely yes. You know, just have the conversation, you know. Yeah. What sort of things do you think that friends, partners, colleagues can do to, I guess, you know, what what are the signs that somebody that they love might might need to go get help? Yeah. You know, anytime, anytime someone you love or someone you know has a a decrease in their level of functioning, you know, they're just not doing as well in in work, in sports. They're not coming out for rides as often. 
you know, just this might be time to check in. Hey buddy, how you doing? You know? Yeah. And be, and be prepared for a real answer is the other half of that really. Well, and also be prepared for them not to want to talk about it. Right. (laughs) Oh God. Absolutely. And it it might, it might take a few goes. I think I was, I forget who I was talking to about this, but uh, maybe it was, maybe it was my friend on the first podcast. Just initially, it's sort of just letting somebody know that, you know, you're, you're there if they want to talk about it, even if they, even if they don't want to talk about it right now. Right. Yeah. Because that, that can take some time for somebody to just be ready to, to, you know, to start that process. And I think it feels like we're edging up onto, you know, a question you've asked me in the past, kind of like, what is, you know, what is the benefit of therapy? And I think it can be hard to really start to have these hard conversations with people in your life because then they're kind of, I think a lot of people worry they're kind of stuck with that information being out there in the relationship then. And, you know, a professional relationship with a therapist is a great place to try out some of these conversations. Yeah. Because you know what, if you, if you don't want to talk about it anymore, you cannot. You know, you cannot go back to that therapist. You cannot go back to therapy. You can just tell the therapist, you know what, I don't want to talk about this anymore, and that's that's part of it. It it can it can be hard in it can be a bigger first step, I think, in personal relationships to start talking about like real stuff because of that worry, like, oh, is this going to change how they think about me? Is this going to change our relationship, the nature of our friendship? I think it's important to be there if someone does want to talk about it. But for me, that's been, I think, one of the the real selling points for therapy is like, hey, you can just try out some of these conversations. And yeah, if you don't like them, you can walk away from it. I mean, I think that the other thing is that especially in, I think in the United States in particular, therapy is far more common. Like I'm talking about like behavioral therapy. And I think there are a lot more people that are just going to therapy, regardless of whether they have a defined mental health condition. They just, they've just always gone. So they go regularly. I think in the UK, it's definitely not, it's definitely not the case. People don't go to therapy as much. People don't talk about, you know, here, someone will bring it up in conversation. Like, oh, I was talking to my therapist about this or that, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know as much about the, most of what I know about the NHS mental health intricacies, you know, I've, really, I've learned from you, frankly. So yeah. it's interesting to hear the differences. Well, be, be careful. I don't know. I don't know that much. <laughs> <laughs> So what about this idea? We've, we've talked about this before. This idea of, you know, let's say somebody's figured out they need, they need some help. Like they might have talked to their GP and then they need to find a therapist. And I, I've been through this, you know, it's really hard to find a therapist, right? What, what sort of, how, how can people go about that? And what sort of things can people do to, you know, to, to sort of, I don't want to say make it easy, but, but what sort of, make that that sort of search more effective and and so they land with somebody that can that's a good fit and that can help them out big question yeah, yeah. i think you know and the first thing you got to figure out is you know how are you, how are you going to fund your therapy um if it's through your insurance or you're going to pay out of pocket for it and you know obviously uh, i recommend you go to insurance you can or you go to therapy you can afford and if you have insurance you said it's someone your insurance will cover it. And that kind of limits it. Then, you know, you contact your insurance and see, okay, who, 
in my area can I go see? And then you can kind of go from there if you know anything about therapy to see if they have expertise really in what you think you might need. Now, wow, this is putting a lot of responsibility on the part of someone who arguably maybe not doesn't know all this yet. Um, So asking the advice of people, you know, you know, the GP maybe that you talk to hopefully has some connections. Uh, And then I guess the other part is, and this is frustrating, but you know, just know that therapists are quite different. And if you don't connect with one or if you don't really get out of, of therapy, what you're wanting to get out of it, the first go, then, you know, please try, you know, connect with somebody else. But I think a big branch point is, you know, do you want to talk to a man or a woman? That's kind of easy on the page to start to figure out. And then, you know, are you going to, I think we've talked a little bit about, you know, capital T therapy and then lowercase T therapy. Are you looking to like, you just need to get some stuff off your chest and kind of talk through some stuff? Or are you looking to engage in some evidence-based practices like cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, you know, some of the more targeted some stuff with homework, basically kind of like what you were talking about in the first episode. And, And then that's a little bit harder to find people who are that are doing a lot of really rigorous evidence-based therapies, but they're out there. Usually, you know, if you can find a PhD psychologist, they do a little bit more of that or people who've had some more specific training, you know? Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is sort of, um, I don't want to say it's trial and error. It's not trial and error. It's, it's sort of research and you've got to talk to a lot of people, right? I mean, I think it's important to talk to people for referrals, but it's also important to, you know, you, you have to like interview therapists pretty much. And most therapists will do, you know, they'll do a 10, 15 minute, like quick consultation just to, you know, see if it's a fit. And I think that's, I mean, you might have to go through five or 10 of those, right. To just have a bunch of conversations to find somebody that, that you think, um, you think you can work with. Right. Let's hope you don't have to do 10, but yeah, I mean, (laughs) if you can do, if you can do that, I think it's amazing. Um, because if you think about what, when you look at the science of what are the the key ingredients to positive outcomes in therapy, it, you know, number one, it's is the therapeutic relationship, you know, and and so it's a little unreasonable to expect that there's going to be a really solid therapeutic relationship between any one therapist and any one person, and so you know, you might you do want to feel like you can trust somebody and you can open up to them, and you don't want them to really remind you of someone you either really like or really hate, you know? Oh, that's a good, that's a good point. I'd never thought about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're there <laughs> to talk, if you're there to talk about, um, you know, some childhood trauma, you know, you probably don't want that person to really remind you of the person that was right. involved in that trauma. Yeah. You know? Or likewise, you know, if you, you walk in and you're really attracted physically to, a therapist, you probably should not, <laughs> you're going to be distracted probably. And you don't, you know, you want to be able to focus on the topics at hand and not worry what they're thinking. Cause I mean, they're trained professionals are not engaging in that kind of experience, you know, but just to allow yourself as the, you know, the healthcare consumer to really set the stage. And, um, yeah. Have you, had, for it. have you had any experience or, or had patients that have used, um, you know, these online providers like Talkspace or BetterHelp, 
which I guess for people listening who don't know about those, they're sort of they're quite widely advertised over here. I mean, Michael Phelps, the swimmer, is sort of the face of talk space, and the idea is they they make behavioural therapy far more accessible because it's and this was pre-COVID, everything was done you know online through video or chat or phone. Now I guess that's become the norm. Have, have you have you ever have you have you come into contact with those services? I you know I ha- I I personally haven't had many I haven't worked with many people who have previously used those services. I think probably because of the cost and the right. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I guess where I guess my you're, patients yeah. are coming from, but but kind of now everything is like that, right? You know, yeah. like all all my pretty well ninety eight percent of my client interactions right now during COVID are you know tele and is our most I think behavioral healthcare was somewhat fortunate in that you know pivoting to that modality was pretty quick for most providers you know we didn't have to like close you know we could just change and I think that's one piece of this you know pandemic response that's probably going to stick around um, Mm -hmm. is is this better access I think you know honestly it's a great thing you know Um, I think after a year, people are starting to be pretty, you know, they're really actually missing a lot of interactions and kind of wanting to start, starting to want to come back in a little bit more, some people, but a lot of people have really enjoyed the convenience of being able to engage in mental health care from the comfort of wherever, you know, I, I think that that's, it's been a great adaptation that i think will stick around for behavioral health care in, in a big way yeah and, and you, you don't think there's any there's no sort of well i guess there is a downside in access to that that you talked about because a lot of your sort of patient group maybe they don't have access to good quality internet and a laptop with a with a webcam i guess putting that to one side once people do get into behavioral therapy through a computer is it as effective? Are there are there limitations to what can and can't be done? You know, like that versus being in person. You know, this, you know, there has been there has been research on this, and a lot of the research has been you know pre COVID, pretty positive, frankly. And I think what you know what will be really important is that people have a choice, especially post COVID. You know that you you can engage in you know, teleservices or in-person services. So, so hopefully that is the direction more providers go, especially bigger organizations, you know, and that, that people have a choice, you know, choice, I think is something I come back to a lot. I want people to have a choice in how they receive care because it's not going to be right. Any one way is not going to be right for everybody, you know, or even everybody on the same day. Like, frankly, like, you know, we, I end up calling my patients a lot of times now. And sometimes people are like, Oh, I forgot we had an appointment today. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and all that, was it okay that we have the appointment now? And they're like, Yeah, it's great. You know, so I think it's far more convenient and, you know, people will be able to access uh, the services more. And, and, and I think the outcomes in behavioral healthcare pretty good. But once again, you know, it comes down to hopefully that we're able to offer people a choice. And, and so, you know, that's, that would be the idea. Yeah. You can do either and whichever works for you. 
and then that might change, you know, from week to week. Yeah. All right. Now I want to talk about drugs <laughs> um, <laughs> because you know this is one this is one of my favorite topics uh, when it comes to uh, mental health issues. And I, you know, I constantly bang on about this DNA test that I did because yeah. I thought it I thought it was great, and it sort of you know, it, it helped me shortcut a lot of experimentation and get to a, a medication that that really worked. And most people I talk to have not heard of this. I guess you know we had a brief conversation about this, and you've definitely got some some more insights on this. Again, you know, I'm certainly not an expert. You are. So why don't you explain a little bit about kind of your sort of perspective on on this DNA test and and how it can and can't be used to um, you know, to help figure out what medication somebody might need. Sure. You, you, you know, first, I just want to say I'm super excited that it worked for you. And Thanks. I don't want to. I don't want to take away from that at all. If you know, it's worked. I think that's amazing. I think I do have a couple of concerns, and I'll just start with. We'll talk a little bit. You know, what are these? When you hear DNA test, what is this? And generally, they're called pharmacogenomic tests. So basically. The idea is, you know, you do a DNA sample and it tells you what liver enzyme polymorphisms, and we think of polymorphism, that's like a gene flavor, you know. Mm -hmm. People have different flavors of certain genes, and our liver is an organ that processes a lot of medications. It breaks things down in your body, foreign, foreign things down in your body, and drugs are one. So, you know, when you take a medication and you swallow it orally, it goes down, you know, through your... Uh, stomach and intestines and then it's absorbed to the blood and first goes to your liver before it goes to the rest of your body and your liver breaks down medications in in many different ways and we each have perhaps slightly different flavors of these enzymes that break down the medications and some of them break down the medications faster some of them break down the medications slower than average and some of them are just you know break them down as expected you know, and so the idea is with these uh, gene tests, you you can kind of get an idea of what your DNA predisposes you to have what flavors of enzymes in your liver, and that can give you an idea then of okay, you know, each medication is broken down by different combinations of these flavors of enzymes in different ways, and with your particular DNA profile, is it likely that you're going to break down this medication slower than average or faster than average or kind of as expected? And so you can imagine a medication that you break down slower or your liver breaks down slower, you're going to wind up with more circulating in your body. Mm -hmm. So you need a much lower dose. In other words, if you take a typical dose, it probably is too much or it could be too much and you might have more side effects or if a medication is broken down too fast by your liver, you're going to wind up with less circulating through your body, you know, into your brain included. And so it might not work as well at a typical dose. And so, you know, what that really tells you is you may need a little bit higher dose than normal, or you may need a little bit lower dose. And I, that's kind of the idea. I haven't seen a lot. Of, I have, like I said earlier, I really have strong hopes for someday blood tests and imaging to really help us diagnostically. And also, you know, with therapeutics in this way, uh, a lot of the non-industry sponsored studies 
So ones that are, you would think of be less biased, you know, because they're not done by people who own the companies that make the tests. Yeah. Haven't shown that people do better using the tests. You know, so they've done these studies where people have X, you know, the prescribers have access to this information or they don't. And people typically don't necessarily do better just because they've had access to the information. And part of that is because, you know, generally with these medications, we do what's called, we start low and go slow. You know, we, we assess for tolerability and efficacy, you know, and so you don't start at the dose you think that's going to work. You start at a low dose and it makes, see how is someone having side effects or not? And if they're not wonderful, you go up on the dose until you achieve the desired result, you know, and sometimes you may never achieve the desired result and then you, you know, you might change medications at at that point. And is that, is that sort of process of trial and error quite common with, you know, maybe having to try out a couple of different types of medication before you find one that's really effective? Well, um, I think, well, when you say effective, effective and tolerated, I would put in there because it's kind of a two pronged approach, right? We want a medication that, that works for somebody. And we also, the the, the side effects are not too bad, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, because all these medications, even the SSRIs have side effects and is trial and error really common? Let's hope less so (laughs) than we worry, but you know, yeah. But the honest truth is by the time someone sees a psychiatrist, usually they've already tried one or two right? that perhaps haven't worked. And, and is um, that if, if they tried one or two, is that because their primary care or their GP can prescribe them or not? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, okay. GPs can prescribe. Absolutely. Okay. Because yeah. I know that's the case in, in the UK. I read an article on The Guardian a few weeks ago and it was talking about how, you know, obviously... During COVID, massive spike in people going to their GP to ask for antidepressants. And, uh, you know, I guess my, my take on that is, uh, I don't know, I just, I have concerns about people going to their GP for antidepressants because first thing, GPs don't spend much time with patients at all, right? They're all very busy and time crunched. And then they're not, you know, they're not an expert like you are. So I, I don't know, what's, what's your take on that? Do you, do you think that GPs should be prescribing or should they be referring to an expert like you to do it? I, I think they absolutely should be prescribing. Just right. Honest, just be based on numbers. I mean, general pra- primary care providers in this country deliver the bulk of mental health medical care. Psychiatric medications, antidepressants, medications for anxieties are some of the most commonly prescribed medications in the United States. And, you know, if you think about how few psych, there aren't many psychiatrists really, you know, compared to GPs and the number of people in the country that need mental health care, which frankly often is well treated by primary care physicians. You know, there's just no way psychiatrists or even psychiatrists and psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners and psychiatric PAs, which are generally the prescribing people with mental health prescribing authority, you know, beyond GPs. Although, you know, obstetricians, all kind of people prescribe, you know, medications for mental illness. Yeah. I think it's totally appropriate. Do you think it, do they end up getting over prescribed? I mean, I guess, you know, there's, there's gotta be a, a high number of people that sort of, go to their doctor specifically asking for an antidepressant because they don't feel great and maybe their condition is not 
that acute does that happen a lot and when it does happen does i mean does that cause issues do people get you know do they get into problems with side effects or can you get addicted to these things addiction is a a brain disease of memory motivation and reward it's not really a I, i think what you might be asking is do people get, is there some physical dependence? Like, is there a discontinuation yeah. syndrome? And usually we, we, in terms of antidepressants, you know, we talk about discontinuation syndrome. When you talk about some of the other medications, like for anxiety, some of the, you know, benzodiazepines are some of the most commonly prescribed medications for better or for worse, you know, in, in the United States, can you get, can someone have a benzodiazepine use disorder or addiction, as you as you say, yes, you know, and so I think benzodiazepines are definitely overprescribed. In Is the United it, hang, States. Hang on a sec. Yeah. Do they have Do they have a brand name that people would recognize? Because I don't recognize that name. Huh, that's so sure. Benzodiazepine <laughs> is a class name, uh, and examples of medications in that class are Alprazolam, Xanax, Lorazepam, Ativan. Okay. I guess Xanax is, is the main one, right? Uh, let's hope it's not, but it is, well, it most, is super common. Most, most well known. When you go through that list of, of yeah. names that I've heard of Xanax and I've heard of Valium, I think that you know, most people right. really have. Yeah. Right. Yes. Sorry, I interrupted you. I guess that just is to say, are we, you know, is healthcare perfect? And the answer is no. Yeah. What? Um, <laughs> I wish we were. No, I mean, it's, it's look, healthcare is complicated anyway. And mental health care, when you're dealing with things that are not tangible, right? It's, it's like you said, you can't measure this with a blood test. You can't, it's not like measuring somebody's blood pressure or doing an MRI of their, you know, their broken bone or, or it's, it's far more nebulous and difficult to pin down in the first place. So it's going to be complicated and difficult and, you know, all, all yeah, there's, you know, in, we, we talked about the DSM. We talked about the DSM earlier and, you know, at the end of every diagnosis, basically there's a disclaimer that says, okay, even if you meet all these criteria, this is not the diagnosis if these are not better explained by a different diagnosis. And so, you know, when you have, when you have a classification system like that, where a certain collection of symptoms can, can be a couple of different things and it relies on a sophisticated we call it a differential diagnosis. It could be these things, but it's most likely this because X, Y, and Z. That takes some time to really do. And as you mentioned, it, it takes training and it takes time with a person. And it takes, you know, when I do an evaluation, most evaluations the psychiatrist will do are, you know, between 45 and minutes and an hour long. You know, that's, that's not very feasible in primary care. It does happen, I imagine, some. Well, um, but, what, you know, what do you what do you think your strike rate is when you when you do a diagnosis? <laughs> What's <laughs> the strike rate? Is that where I hit it or where I? Miss I mean, it? like how how many times are you right versus wrong? I don't know. That's a good question. <laughs> and the problem is, we don't have. I mean, the way to know how good you are is to have a way of verifying your guesses. Like meteorologists, for as much grief as we give them are the most accurate prognosticators around because they make a prediction and then they actually can observe, did it happen or not? And then they feed that data back into their prediction models. Our prediction models are based on, they're really, they should be based on two things. They should be based on, okay, 
what could this be? And then secondarily, what are the baseline prevalences of these conditions? Because the frustrating thing is that an uncommon presentation of a common illness is more common than the common presentation of an uncommon illness. So even though something looks exactly like this really rare thing or less common thing, it's probably the thing it doesn't quite look like, but is far more common. So, and then there is no, there is no imaging or blood test that we can then feed through our, our um, predictive models to say, oh, I was right and I'm wrong this number of times. So, I mean, the answer is, I don't know. I don't know how good I am. And I'm okay with that. You know, I think that you have to be comfortable with uncertainty in all types of medicine. Not that you should ever do any less than your best. Obviously, you're always doing your best and you're using, you're staying up to date you yeah. know, on your knowledge. And, and, you're, and you're seeing, your it, you're seeing it have an impact, right? You're seeing that the patients that you work with day to day making progress and, and hopefully um, getting better, right? Well, ideally, yes. Okay, ideally. look, I, I got another another hot question on the subject of drugs right now is psychedelics, right? And there's a lot mm-hmm. of research out there and a lot of commentary on the use of psilocybin, LSD, and it's not a psychedelic, but also MDMA is used for sort of treating post-traumatic stress and this sort of thing. Where, like, where, where do you stand on this? Or do, you, do you think this is going to become a a tool in the mental health sort of toolkit in the near future? I mean, in Oregon, it's been sort of semi-legalized. I mean, it's not been 100% legalized. They just, they're allowing further exploration, right? To, right. to, to figure yeah, out like how, a, yeah. You I think can it'll be like it. a three. Yeah, I, I can't quite remember the details of the legislation. I think it's like a three-year period to look into how to set up specialized clinics. Yeah. That, where that people was, can receive the medication with trained therapists. Right. Um, and, th- and this is specifically for psilocybin, i.e. mushrooms, correct. not yeah. for any of the other two. Yeah. That's um, and this was quite a groundbreaking legislation that was passed in November, right, in, in Oregon specifically. And I don't think there's any other state that has, that has done that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about other states. I think, uh, and what do I think about it all? I think, yeah. I think there's a lot of, really promising research. I think it's, we need better medications, frankly. We know that, you know, the medications we have don't work for everybody. And that is incredibly frustrating for everybody, um, especially the people that don't, they don't work for <laughs> and the people working with them to help them get better. I worry a little bit about people taking things into their own hands a little bit and experimenting, you know, because with unknown dosages, people can have some adverse reactions and you know, they, they may not mesh well. So, uh, you know, with other medications they might be taking, but I think there's incredible promise and just have to trust the research process. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, I've, I've, I've read a bit about this recently and Michael Pollan's book is, um, is how to change your mind. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. And, and I think what, you know, one of the things that comes through loud and clear in that is exactly what you're talking about. This is not about going and getting some mushrooms from somebody and, and, you know, taking them, the, the importance of like set and setting, right. And, and mm-hmm. having a guide to really like a therapist to sort of set you up for it, to guide you through it. And then to help you integrate it afterwards are incredibly important. And I like, I'm, I'm very curious about this. 
I I actually spoke to somebody that does this earlier this week. I was uh-huh. recommended somebody, and I had a very interesting conversation with this with this person that that leads people through these experiences. And um, one of the first things she told me, uh, uh, you probably know this, you obviously can't do this while you're taking any other psychiatric drug. <laughs> right. And That's so, what I was alluding to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, fir- the first thing she said is like, any, like anybody that goes through this, they have to be free and clear of any, any psychiatric medicine for two months, which, you know, I guess it totally makes sense. If you're going to do something that's, you know, potentially mind-altering, you don't want to be mixing it with another mind-altering substance, right? <laughs> Yeah, and specifically, you know, the the interaction with the serotonergic systems is shares a lot of. There's a lot of potential for interactions, you know, with a lot of common psychiatric medications. So, and so I don't know. Just, I don't know about the two month. I don't know about the two month period. It's not. This is not my area of expertise. But yeah, John Johns Hopkins is doing a lot of research in this area, and I think there is a lot of promise. Yeah. I, I interestingly, did you see the? There's some recent review came out that suggested some of the, a lot of the micro dosing, you know, might be largely placebo when you control, when you do it in a placebo controlled environment, some of the benefits seem to disappear. So I think there's still a lot to learn dosage, substance, environment, diagnosis, does it work? Does it not work? I think medicine's filled with things we really looked like they worked and thought were going to work. And then the more data we gathered, Uh, you know just unfortunately it didn't work any better than placebo yeah there's um i think there's there's definitely a a a sort of caution with you know with this sort of thing it's it's sort of becoming very i I don't want to say cool and trendy but it's it's becoming more widely publicized and and quite public uh people with quite quite high public profiles i mean like tim ferris who's you know his podcast is listened to by hundreds of thousands and he's um, been very vocal in in sort of backing research into this and I guess we don't want to get to the point where people just want to do it because it's new and cool right <laughs> or, or because it's because it's the legal way to take mushrooms or LSD yeah I think you know I think part of it is that it um, you know it gives people some hope yeah and you know for people who you know been in this been in this area and maybe they they They've known people, maybe they've had a personal journey where they, you know, they haven't been able to find the medication that works for them without the set of side effects that they, you know, don't want. Then you know, when there's something new, uh, I, I think that, you know, that really makes people hopeful that yeah. maybe they can get better. And that is powerful. And, yeah. um, and I think, you know, that tapping into that and then, and then also, you know, there's a populist issue they're like, wow, these are things we can grow in our backyard, perhaps, you know, and I think that's having a moment for sure, especially on the West Coast. People love, you know, people love things they can grow in their yard. And uh, <laughs> so I think it's a you know, yeah. I mean, I, intertwining I think, you know, the enthusiasms. Other, the other thing with this that the research and a lot of the, the reading supports is these things do have real benefits for people even who don't have mental health issues, right? And just just people that have experimented with MDMA or mushrooms, have, it, it can have it can give people real sort of quasi spiritual breakthroughs and and have real real impact that way. Yeah, I think you know if you even think about some of the names we use for medications in this realm, you know we talk we call them intactogens or entheogens, 
intactogens are things that bring us, you know, closer together. Uh, mm-hmm. Theogens are things that perhaps bring us closer to God. You know, I think, um, I think that can be the experiences of, from what people describe, of course, are, can be profound. And I think, uh, you know, anytime you come up to the edge of an abyss and you look in, that can change a person. And I think a lot of people are looking for that, you know, what is, what is that next big thing or what is the thing that potentially can help fill a chasm, you know, in their life, you know, even if they don't have a diagnosable mental illness, you know, right. I think pe- yeah. people are always looking for meaning, you know, so, and I think. Yeah, totally. And this, this kind of, I had this written down on my notes, actually. It, it, I guess people are looking for these sorts of things because I think modern life contributes to creating more of these issues in the first place, right? And I think there's just a ton of like societal stuff that, you know, that reinforces sort of people comparing themselves with others all the time. And, and particularly with, with social media, this need to sort of constantly, you know, posting their best life and it's not real. And, and it, it leads to real like concrete issues with people and particularly with, you know, with kids and teenagers. I mean, where like, where do you, where do you stand on that? I'm not a, I think you've laid it out. You've laid out the argument well, and I don't have a whole lot to add because I agree. I mean, um, well, I guess causes, it causes I'm, people a lot of pain, you know, uh, you know, I, I, you know, from a professional standpoint, yeah, I hear people, it gets, it gets people down, you know, people yeah. often really do think that other people are out there living these lives <laughs> yeah. and what, you know, what they don't, all, what you're not always able to see is that, you know, social media presence is like a shrine that someone builds to themselves often, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's really, it's really like these curated moments, probably that are vastly outnumbered by just moments of tedium and yeah. pain, you know, frankly, that they're not putting up. And it's tough, I think, for people to see that. Now, people connect, I think, also through social media. And I don't want to downplay the importance of that. But certainly, you know, this aspect of social media where people really put forth this curated unrealistic self images i think pretty damaging to anyone who's feeling inadequate yeah no i hear you mate it's it's, uh, social media is amazing for keeping in in contact with people and especially for somebody who's you know an expat in a foreign country it's it's invaluable for for kind of keeping in touch with people back home but you're right it this, this is not real life and maybe the solution is people need to post more more pain on social media, right? Or more, <laughs> or more real life. I've, I've got this, th- I think there's a, an element of this in cycling as well, right? And I would, oh my put, gosh. I would put Strava and power meters and Zwift in this bucket as well. But all of those things are, are amazing inventions, right? Don't get me wrong. Yeah. Strava's amazing. Yeah. Power meters are amazing. Zwift is, is game changing. I've been a late convert, but I love it. But, all three of them have changed the way that I think cyclists interact with each other in a way that is not always good, right? <laughs> yeah, it's hard, you know, you know, what's your watts per kilo, bro? It's, uh, <laughs> I, I do, yeah, I, I, I do, but yeah, I don't you know? care and I wish people didn't care. <laughs> uh, no, I know, I, I never had, I bought, you know, a smart trainer when 
uh, shortly after moving to Southern Oregon because of the smoke. And yeah. frankly, even, even then I was like, no, I hate this, but I broke my collarbone and my shoulder blade three months, a little over three months ago. And so I was kind of forced to get into it this past winter. And I started using trainer road, you know, it was way more fun than any trainer I'd ever been on in the past. You should, have you tried so Zwift I, yet? I haven't since I got back into it. I had tried okay. Zwift, you know, once, but I kind of, you know, that's kind of, I kind of don't want to get into the Zwift for the same reason that <laughs> I stopped, I stopped, I, you know, I rode, I was on the, I wasn't good, but I was on the road team in college, our road cycling team. And, you know, I was in, did a lot of road bike and I quit at one point, you know, probably about at this point, 15 years ago, I quit riding road for about a period of 10 years. I didn't really ride my bike. I ran mostly. And it was because it just turned into every ride was about going out and beating your friends, you know, yeah. and I got just so tired of it. And <laughs> I just enjoyed the people I was running with at the time. But then I moved to Ashland and just mountain biking is amazing here. And so I bought a mountain bike, a little hardtail, and then I wasn't sure, you know, but I got into it and I was like, I love it. And then you know, it went down from, you know, you, it went downhill from there. It's like I ride six, five to six days a week now. And yeah, I'm on Strava and sounds terrible, <laughs> but I try not, you know, I tr- is that part is I really try and just not look at Strava ever. I keep it to kind of like, see, like when I try different, I use it mostly like to see is my, what I'm doing training wise working or I try different techniques and was I, okay, did that work? Was I faster corner, you know, cornering through there? Did that actually, was that, did that just feel faster or was it actually faster? But I find the piece of, um, yeah, comparing, like following what other people are writing. So stressful. I'll be honest with you. So I I don't like to look like the social piece of Strava. I cannot stand, frankly. But I just kind of use it more. I try and just use it as more of a training tool. But I do try and give people kudos every once in a while because I know it's important to them. And I'll just go through and give like a thousand people <laughs> kudos and then try and put it away for a while. Maybe uh, a kudos from Dr. John is is uh, is worth more than a kudos from anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, yeah, it's it's tough, man. I mean, it's. It's just like the rest of social media. You know, I mean, I love Instagram, but it's hard to put it down and you can just disappear into that rabbit hole. And it's the same with, you know, with with Strava and Zwift and things. I I love them. They're amazing tools, but I find myself, I can get very, it's a fine line between just, you know, using them for the utility that they provide and then becoming obsessed with them. It's Um, seductive. It is, but well, yeah, I mean, they're all built to be, to be seductive, right? Yeah. Partly, I guess part of it, I should caveat this with, I'm, I'm a sort of um, slightly curmudgeonly ex-racer, right? And it took me a long time from when I stopped racing, probably it was like 10 years ago, I was last racing seriously in the Bay Area and doing crits. And I just, you know, you get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm done with racing, I don't want to do it anymore. It took me a long, long time to get that out of my system and let it go and just enjoy riding my bike without trying to go fast all the time. And I feel like I keep getting drawn back into it. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to train harder yeah. so I can, so I can, and, and then, you know, I'll train half a bit and I'm like, 
it's happening again. I'm getting sucked into this bullshit again. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Have you ever forgotten your phone? I don't, I, I don't have, I don't train with a, like a computer or anything uh, on the, when I'm outside. Yeah. So if you, uh, you know, every once in a while I'll forget my phone and then I have such an, um, you know, for, for a second you're like, Oh, I can't Strava. And then, yeah, you know what? You have think, such a good ride. I it's think like I'm, so nice. I'm going to start a campaign for like everybody to just do a, a social ride once a week where there's no data and there's no tracking and you ride at the pace of the slowest person in your group. And the thing is, is the other, the other thing I was thinking about later to this is that when I, um, again, I sound really old now when I grew up and I was cycling. So I grew up in a, in a cycling family, right? My grandfather was racing time trials into his seventies. And then both my dad and his two brothers raced. And so, so, you know, I was like immersed in it, racing like under 12 cyclocross. And back then, like this was the era of like really traditional cycling clubs in the UK. Cycling was a weirdo minority sport. It, did, it had nowhere near the same profile that it does now. And, um, you know, every week you'd go on the club run, right? Which mm-hmm. was like a Sunday ride with the club. It was like super well-organized and structured and, you turn up as a 15 year, 14, 15 year old, some old dude would basically school you and tell you off and, <laughs> and, and school you how to ride in a, in a group, right? And you'd get, mm-hmm. you'd get, you'd get trained. It wasn't about how fast you're going. It was like your, your, your skill and your etiquette in riding in a group. And there were things like, you know, like, like nobody would ride in their big ring until about January, February. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and yeah. like, you know, you, you were like schooled to like, you got to right. ride in you the little ring. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Lot, lots of people rode fixies, but a lot of time it was just, it just wasn't done to put it in your big ring and hammer in November because that's not what you did in the winter. And I, and I feel like we've kind of, we've lost so much of that. And all of these modern things are awesome, but I think we just, we need a dash of like the, the traditional British club run every now and again. <laughs> yeah, I used to do it, you know, just getting into, I got into cycling coming off a bad a running injury. I got a stress fracture in my pelvis of all places. And so kind of, you know, got into swimming and, and cycling kind of as recovery from that. And I started riding with a shop group and, you know, I can, I have a lot of fond memories of, yeah, you know, showing up and people of who've been riding for decades and decades, you know telling you to ride the white line, you know, and how to ride, you know, you know, echelon and good memories. Yeah. I don't really have that in mountain biking so much. I don't think you, you don't. And, um, I, I don't, this doesn't exist as much in road cycling these days either. And I, and I, I could certainly see it when I was last in the UK and, and, and racing bikes seriously. So this is probably 2000 and I don't know, five, six, seven, something like that. You could already see things have changed a lot. And it, mm. new, new people were coming into the sport, which is, again, it's, it's awesome. But there was, there was no structure to, to train these people on, on how to ride in, a, ride in a bunch, and particularly how to race in a bunch. And we have a purpose-built cycle circuit in West London called, called Hillingdon, or you know, um, referred to as the Don. And you go and race the Don on a Tuesday night, and then as these new people were coming into the sport, lots of them were, were highly trained from other sports. So typically people were crossing over from, from rowing was a very common yeah. one and, and triathlon. And so 
you know, riders who were very strong and very fast, but had not been educated on how to, to race properly. And it just caused a bunch of crashes, but you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the last, the last thing on this subject, I would just like to give a shout out to a man called Doug Collins. If anybody who's listening to this, who grew up in sort of Southwest London, like Doug was, Doug was a legend in the Twickenham cycling club. He was the archetypal kind of, you know, super experienced guide, raced professionally. And he was probably in his fifties and sixties back in, you know, when I was, when I was a kid and just, you know, took time to, to school all these youngsters in the art of, of, uh, of bike riding and bike racing. So there we go. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Doug. Um, we need more Dougs. We need we more do, Dougs. We need we more do, mentorship in this world. We do. And this is, um, I was, yeah, I was sort of in the middle of writing a blog post about this and, and I'd sort of taken a bunch of things that sort of, I don't want to call them rules, but there's a podcast about happiness research and it has a bunch of sort of, you know, like simple things people can do to maintain a, you know, healthy, happy life. And I sort of mm-hmm. looked at these and I was sort of adapting some of them for cycling. Right. And, you know, there's common stuff like getting outdoors in nature and, you know, switching off your phone and the things that we talked about already. But yeah, you, you, you've hit upon a really important one, which is like giving back and volunteering. I'm terrible at this. But I think we all need to do a better job, right? And and cycling gives us a really good platform to do this, where we, if we are more experienced, to take some time to, you know, help a younger rider or or you know, I don't know, like give give somebody your your cycling kit that you don't need anymore, or lead a ride for some novices, or get involved in the, you know, high school mountain biking program. It's 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 definitely something we need to do more of good for us all it is good it's good to be of service yeah look i wanted to finish with a question just on whether you've got any sort of um you know like lifestyle hacks or good sort of lifestyle practices that people can be doing i guess regardless of whether they have a defined mental health issue or not just things that people can do day to day to maintain a sort of a, a sort of healthy balance slash healthy yeah mental health life hacks yeah you know i I, this will come to a surprise this will come as a surprise probably no one listening but there's almost nothing that exercise doesn't make better it's something i talk about with nearly all my patients you know if you can't if you're not exercising and you can you know for some people it's I mean, really, I put this in the bigger frame of what we call behavioral activation. And for some people, it's you're starting at the beginning. You know, it's getting out of bed every day. And for some people, it's getting out of bed, taking a shower, getting dressed, you know, kind of moving through the levels to, you know, if you can get outside the house, walk around the block, start exercise. If you can go for a walk, go for a brisk walk, go for a jog ride a bike there's there's very little exercise that doesn't make better in mental health perhaps in no other area more so than mental health frankly it's so good for your brain to get more oxygen and that's how you do it you get your you know your heart pumping and you get more blood to your brain i guess the other thing is you know just since we're talking about mental health and cycling just the importance of friendship and not 
you know, I guess just recognizing friendship for where it exists. You know, there's, I heard someone, I didn't make this up. I heard someone else say it. Anytime you're, especially with, you know, male intimacy, dudes, friendship, you know, can be hard for guys our age to make new friends. But anytime you're doing an activity and you're not talking about the activity, that might be friendship, you know? So letting it be okay when you go on a ride to not talk about bikes. <laughs> yeah. Or your, your watts per kilo. <laughs> your watts per kilo. Let's, let's, ban, let's ban that chat altogether. <laughs> you know, the, you, and I think bike rides are so great for that. Um, you know, long climbs are made for just getting stuff out. And I think it's, it's pretty amazing. Other life hacks, you know, don't drink too much caffeine, get up every time. It's about the same time every day, you know, go to sleep, get up about the same time every day. If you can eat your meals at about the same time every day, do that. It's better for your body. Eat a primarily plant-based diet. Make sure you get your fruits and vegetables. I don't have a whole lot of real <laughs> sassy wisdom here. No, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm with but, you on you know, that one. Just kind of the basics. The, the, the plant-based, mostly plant-based is, um, has worked great for me. I, I, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. And then, Actually, it was, it was, sorry, just going off on a tangent. It was, you and I were talking about the, um, the idea of men, it being hard for men to make friends, right? Because I think we were mm-hmm. talking about people that, people that I know in Ashland and a lot of the men that I know in Ashland have moved here because to be closer to their wife's family. And I think this is, this, this is something that's quite common where the, the men up sticks and move somewhere and okay, they're, you know, they're supporting their wife and their family and all that good stuff. But then they end up somewhere where they're totally isolated and they don't know anybody. And that's a large contributor to why so many men are lonely and don't have really good friends late in life. Right. Yeah. And, and cycling's awesome for, you know, balancing that out. I think so. You know, cycling and running both. Not that this is a running podcast, but, you know, just finding groups of people to do things with. And then hopefully while you're doing that thing, talk about something other than that activity. Yeah. 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 Pretty much, you know. So you had one anyway. You had one last thing I interrupted you on. What was that? No, oh, I don't think it was anything important. I think we no. got right to it. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, look, have we, um, have we missed anything out? Was there anything that you, that you were dying to you know, put out there that you haven't had the chance to? Hmm. Uh, you know, not really. <laughs> I guess a couple things came up. We could talk, you know, since I'm a psychiatrist and we're talking about this stuff, I heard there's, we could talk about the monoamine theory of depression, kind of like the chemical imbalance theory that's bandied about quite a bit that I think probably is a little overly simplistic, but I think we all know that at this point. Perhaps that'll be for another time. We'll talk again. Um, well, hang on. Let's just, let me just like clarify what that is exactly. Cause uh, yeah. I'm not sure I understood that. And is this where we're talking about depression being a result of a brain chemistry or behavioral issues? Yeah. Or just being like specifically a serotonin deficiency, you know? I think right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's, that was really a, that was really made up by drug companies, frankly, and to sell drugs that were shown to raise serotonin. I'm not saying they don't work. But it probably don't work exactly that way. Yeah. You know, probably they work by helping the brain change. And that's why, you know, combining medications with some therapeutic therapeutic work really can be so powerful because they set the platform for the change to really occur. You know, medications uh, for many conditions are kind of like, to put it in a bike 
analogy is kind of like the lube, you know, your chain lube or your chain wax, pick your poison. They don't make the bike go, you know, they just kind of make things progress a little bit better. And so, so I think we're still figuring out exactly how they work, but probably they help the brain change, they increase neuroplasticity, you know, more so than they correct any specific like imbalance in the synapse. But I'm always one to try and correct things that people are trying to sell you. And I think that was, that was one sort of story that drug companies really sold to the American people in a big way. Yeah. So hang on, just, just so I, just so I'm clear on this, you're saying that yes. the drug companies have marketed particularly these SSRIs as, as basically they're saying that depression is just about a serotonin deficiency, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Basically. And we all know that's, it's Probably far more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that, you know, that I have, I'm constantly shocked at the amount of pharmaceutical advertising over here. I just, <laughs> whenever I see a TV ad, which for the most obscure conditions, it's like, ask your physician for this. I'm like, well, no, I'd rather go to my GP and, and listen to what they have to say, not tell them I want the drug that I've seen on TV. But, you know, that's capitalism for you, isn't it? It is. You're smart. You're smart. You're a smart mental health consumer or healthcare consumer in general. If you trust your physician over what you see on the internet because that's becoming less common. Yeah. There we go, folks. Don't trust the pharmaceutical ads on TV. Let's leave it there. Yes. <laughs> All right, John, this has been awesome. I've learned a lot. Thank you for your time and for sharing all of this stuff. It's all good. I've had a really good time too. It's good to talk to you. Cool. Thanks, John. All right. Take care. So that's it for this episode of the Black Dog Cast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please leave us a review or rating or share the podcast with your mates. To find out more about the Black Dog Project, you can look us up on the web or Instagram at blackdog.bike.